You're very welcome back to On The Record with me, Kieran Cudahy. Time now for more Hidden Histories. It does appear as if the state is either unwilling or unable uh, to protect the rights of individual citizens who are homosexual in this country. It also, I think, uh, does raise a question about the Irish Constitution. After today, it can be said that the Irish Constitution does not protect the fundamental human rights of its own citizens. Yes, the unmistakable voice of David Norris there speaking in 1983. Almost as unmistakable as your voice, Donald <laughs> he's, uh, Fallon. He's the second greatest Joycean in Dublin after me. <laughs> yeah, that's it, exactly. <laughs> did, he, did he imbibe the way you did, I wonder, for uh, Bloomsday last weekend? I hope so. <laughs> um, look, this weekend, as we speak, uh, Dublin's second largest parade is taken to the streets as people from all over Ireland have marched in pride. And that's why we played that clip of David Norris, of course, like he played a central role in the decriminalisation of homosexuality here um, it's an enormous celebration now of diversity of life the origins of the parade though they're tragic they're entangled in one of the most reprehensible murders of the 20th century in Ireland which Leo Varadkar referenced himself mm. a, a short time ago uh, so that's what we're looking at today how Pride I suppose found its voice and it, it is a it is a milestone week and that is why it Leo Varadkar was yeah. speaking about it as well uh, what, what, a, what, what a beautiful week it was the 25th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality which is a, a landmark moment in all kinds of different spheres of Irish life, you know, in Irish legal history, political history, social history. Uh, and, you know, it's difficult to believe that, you know, right into living memory, right right into 25 years ago, we were basically living uh, with homosexuality laws that were Victorian. You know, the Offences Against the Persons Act from 1861, which made buggery uh, an offence punishable by penal servitude. So there's this old saying, it's an old cliche and I hate it, you know, the past is a foreign country. I don't think the past is a foreign country. I think the past is a different country. Uh, and definitely, you know, Ireland has changed, has changed uh, uh, an awful lot. Uh, so in recent times on this slot, we've looked at things like Hilton Edwards, Mihal McLeamor. Yes, great story. So, yeah. I mean, there's there's been gay people in Ireland since the birth of the state and before the before the birth of the state, you know. And and there were things like public houses like Rice's and Bartley Dunn's in the 1960s, which were not explicitly gay bars, but were gay-friendly institutions. So gay people were always there and people knew that they were there. But by the 1970s and the early 1980s, I think people were just tired of living in the shadows. And one of the catalyst moments, I think, uh, for change in Ireland was the death of Declan Flynn uh, in 1982, which I think is still one of the most shocking tales of modern Ireland uh, because there was a near total absence of punishment for those who admitted to their part in his death. In some ways, you could argue what they did was glorified. And I think the massive leaps that Ireland has made in, in, in recent years in the field of gay rights, I think this murder that we're talking about today, for many people, it was it was a real turning point. Yeah, we'll come back to the murder and the details of it uh, and the fallout, as you said. But in terms of how change happened, I suppose change, uh, like it's, ha- it's slow, it's incremental, and then every now and then there's great leaps forward. Yeah, sometimes when change comes, it comes really rapidly and you, know, you can't stand in the way of progress. And, and that's how it was in, in 1970s Ireland. That decade witnessed a number of very important developments in Irish society. I think one of the main things, as far as gay rights was concerned, was the opening of the Hirschfeld Centre uh, in Dublin's Temple Bar. And I mean, we wouldn't recognise Temple Bar today as Temple Bar in the 1970s. There's something about 1970s Temple Bar. It sounds magnificent. You know, it's been described as a bohemian kip, which is a great way of putting it. You know, it was a rundown, decaying industrial landscape. Warehouses were closing, factories were closing, and kind of coming out through the cracks was something of a cultural quarter. And, you know, a lot of younger listeners go, Temple Bar, cultural quarter, are you mad? But that's how it was back then. And the Hirschfeld Centre took its name from Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who was the Einstein of sex. That's how he was known. He ran the, <laughs> uh, the Institute of Sexual Studies in Berlin, which, unsurprisingly... Uh, was destroyed by the Hitlerists when they came to power in the 1930s and he went into political exile. 
And Magnus Hirschfeld became this kind of great symbol uh, for gay rights activists right across the world. So you had this centre named after him in Temple Bar, the pink triangle, you know, the, the, the symbol that homosexuals were forced to wear in Nazi Germany was over the building. And Dr. Noel Brown, the TD. Yeah, this is amazing, know, opened it up. An amazing man, yeah. Noel Brown. I mean, he's remembered for the, the mother and child scheme when he really went to war with the church. But, you know, he is and the lost. man. And lost. And lost in spectacular style. He's the man who unveiled the plaque. And on the day it was said that the centre was living proof of gay people's newfound pride, testimony to the fact that the gay citizens of Ireland need no longer fear to openly be ourselves. And was so, it a success? It, David Norris in his book talks about the first night it opened. Hundreds of people came through the door. He says 400 people were in the place. He could feel the floorboards were bouncing. And he has this great line in his book. He says, I addressed the throng and told them they could have a refund or they could stay and chat to their friends or the coffee bar was free for the night, but there'd be no more dancing on that evening. I was booed and hissed at before one guy stood up and said, hold on a minute, isn't it just as well there's someone who does care about our safety? And the booze turned into cheers. So, I mean, there were so many people in the place that thought the floorboards were going to go from under them. And what was the reaction then outside Ireland's gay community? I mean, the Hirschfeld Centre was magnificent because one of the things about it was that, I mean, some of it was very deadly serious. There was Tell a Friend, uh, which became the gay switchboard, an important kind of uh, resource for, for, for young gay people. But there was also a disco called Flickers. And Flickers was probably the, the greatest disco in the history of Dublin. They were getting... Uh, records in from New York. I mean, you could go down, and in the words of one DJ who played there, Paul Webb, you had the same five clubs playing the same 20 songs on Harcourt Street, which is kind of still the case. Yes. Or you could go to <laughs> Flickers and you could hear the kind of latest in, in, in dance music from right across the world. So one of the problems was that most people going were probably straight because the music was so good. They just wanted to go and hear the latest in dance music. And journalists were often sent down to have a look at the report in the Hirschfeld Centre. There's a great one in the end, though. The homosexuals have a reputation for a ferocious sexual appetite. There's little evidence of it here. In sitting to one side of the room, two men were kissing. It is a surprisingly young crowd, most of whom appear to be in their early 20s. Most have businessman's haircuts and wear moder moderately casual clothes. A few form to the traditional <laughs> image of gays, floridly dressed, wearing necklaces and earrings, with their faces painted with lipstick and eyeshadow. So flickers... Uh, you know, it really attracted a lot of attention, good and bad, but there was nothing like it in Dublin. And in terms of bad attention, was it a focus of attack from, from, from people who were... Oh, I mean, Norris has a great, great story of a November night in 1985 where he climbs onto the roof of the premises and he discovers, he, he says, Ashfeld coat it felt was on fire. There was a milk churn full of explosives sitting there, surrounded by fire lighters and two barrels of petrol. It was as if the whole roof was a giant petrol bomb just waiting to explode. And the Hirschfeld was destroyed by a fire. Uh, later on in the 80s and it's always been disputed but I, I believe it was it was arson and the original plaque is on the wall in the Little Museum of Dublin I think what's very touching about the Hirschfeld Centre uh, is that the nightclub decks actually survived you know the place burned to the ground but yeah. the nightclub decks survived and uh, the inimitable Tony Walsh who's a historian and archivist uh, who DJed in the Hirschfeld Centre he has them I've seen them during his house and he still plays records on them they oh, still brilliant. work so they were they are the survivor you know of the Hirschfeld Centre and, and if the Hirschfeld Centre was I suppose part of this cultural change that was happening what about then the legal change behind the scenes the voice we heard at the beginning Norris I mean the campaign for homosexual law reform that came out of Trinity College where you had the Dublin University Gay Society in the 1970s very bold you know pre-decriminalisation to set up a, a student society and call it the Dublin University Gay Society was very very bold and Norris famously went to the High Court in 1980 then the European Court of Human Rights in 83 and you know it's dangerous to to pick one or two individuals in history and say he did this on his own. There was a mass movement of people, including Mary Robinson and others behind him, and there were kind of two strands to it all. You know, there's the 
the more visible gay community that's coming out, that's not afraid to be seen, that's dancing all night in the Hirschfeld, and there's the backroom challenge to the status quo. And that happens in the courts. But both strands are in their own way very, very important. And let's get back then to the issue of Declan Flynn and that murder of Declan Flynn, the killing of him. Um, they weren't found guilty of murder. Mm. Uh, the... Uh, to tell us exactly what happened. What do we know that happened? At this is not the first uh, reactionary murder in Irish history, but I think the manner in which the courts dealt with it, or rather didn't deal with it, uh, infuriated people. Uh, and Declan Flynn was a 31-year-old, a young man, an Oriental worker, beaten to death by a group of five teenagers in a, a gay-bashing incident uh, in Fairview Park. And not alone was he savagely beaten and left for dead, and emerged afterwards that four pounds at his watch was stolen from him. Uh, as he lay there dying. So it wasn't just homophobic bigotry, it was you know, good old-fashioned criminality as well. And it emerged at the time, though I don't think it was news to anyone who lived near the park, that Fairview Park had witnessed a kind of number of such assaults in the run-up to it. And the gang of youths that attacked Flynn, I mean, the media reported coming up to the trial, uh, they'll probably do seven-year sentences. Instead, they received five-year suspended sentences and they're found not guilty of murder. And it's a historical fact. I mean, when I first heard this, I thought, this can't be true. And I went to the newspaper archives and there it is. The judge actually says in court, this could never be regarded as murder. So there's the idea that the youngsters were some kind of vigilante heroes. And then most sickening of all, there's a victory parade of sorts uh, upon their release from the courts. So they're teenagers. Yeah, they're teenagers, but they're street smart and they're fundamentally very, very vicious. And uh, they walk. You mentioned the media reporting, actually. Let's take a little clip of Pat Kenny when he was working on RTE, on RTE television, on the Today Tonight programme, speaking after the case was dealt with. Declan Flynn was set upon by five men, including a 15-year-old youth. He was savagely beaten, unconscious, and left mortally wounded. He inhaled blood from his mouth and nose and died from asphyxia. Yesterday, his five assailants were sentenced in the Central Criminal Court, convicted of the manslaughter of Declan Flynn. Two 18-year-old Air Corps soldiers, Robert Armstrong of Finglas and Anthony Marr of Ballybock, were sentenced to five years. Patrick Kavanagh, an 18-year-old former Dublin County minor footballer, was sentenced to two years. Colm Donovan of Lower Buckingham Street, a 17-year-old unemployed youth, got four years and a 15-year-old juvenile was sentenced to 12 months. All of the sentences were suspended by Mr Justice Gannon, the duration of the suspension in each case equal to the length of the sentence. Now what this means is that if they don't get into trouble with the police during the period of their suspension, they will not serve any detention for depriving Declan Flynn of his life. Mr Justice Gannon in court noted the jury's horror and anxiety at the nature of the crime. This crime, he said, is one which would merit severe punishment. He pointed out to the five accused that each was liable to be sentenced to life imprisonment. And the reason for this was that Declan Flynn's death was caused by violence, the concentrated violence of you all. Criminals you are, the judge said, but there is a factor that when a group is involved, it is much more difficult to hold back. Collective violence is much more serious than an individual acting on his own. The judge said that he had to demonstrate the abhorrence of immunity by imposing sentences but it will not be necessary that these sentences be imposed immediately. One thing, he said, which has come to my mind, is that there appears to be no element of correction required. All of you come from good homes and have experienced care and affection. The words of Mr Justice Gannon. It, there's so much remarkable about that. Oh, First of all, Declan really, Flynn drowned yeah. in his own blood. Yeah. That's the description yeah. that, that Pat gave there. 
secondly, I don't know why it stood out, but the fact that two of them were Air Corps soldiers as well, mm. you know what I mean? That mm. uh, it, you'd maybe expect something more of them. And then... The idea that, uh, that that no element for correction is needed oh. because of their background. Yeah, oh, phenomenal, phenomenal. And uh, McGill magazine did something that was very controversial, but I think it's an important kind of landmark moment in Irish journalism. They went off and they interviewed the young killers. I think the reason they did it was to show that there was absolutely no empathy or compassion on their part. And one of them said, the park is a good place to batter someone. There's loads of getaway points. You can get over the East Wall or down the tracks, down into the dumps or out by Sean McDermott Street. They have in the hope. And absolutely grim. I mean, the journalist writes, the night they killed Eklund Flynn, the girls had gone home. The girls always went home when they went queer bashing or bashing people they thought were queers. Sometimes it didn't really matter if they were or not, but it was better if they were. So there were just young people that were reveling in violence. Could have been a fight outside a chip shop, you know, but I think because of the context in which it had happened, they essentially walked. And, and look, as we said, this is the, the incident, the kind of, the matchstick moment that led mm. to Pride, the first Pride. And you know, in response to this absolutely horrific incident, the first Pride March happens in March 1983 and it's billed as a gay rights protest march. And the images are just amazing because they show kind of defiance. There's also fear. I mean, to be out on the streets with a placard in 1983 is, is very bold, you know, and the, the placards demand justice and safety. So it's kind of far removed from what we see this weekend, which is a very carnival atmosphere. You know, Pride in Dublin is kind of like Mardi Gras now. And they make their way out to Fairview uh, and it, it was a massively important event. I think it was felt in the aftermath that the outrage of the killing of Flynn, you could kind of channel that into more positive action. You know, that in some ways, that young man's death was a catalyst for something. Uh, and when you look back through through the figures, you know, there's this famous, at the moment, this blasphemy law in, in, the, in the Constitution. And it's written in such a way that no one will ever be, the legislation no. written in such a way that no one can no. ever be prosecuted for it. People were prosecuted. They were, and the Ireland. numbers are absolutely staggering. There was a, a great article in the journal this week, and they said that between 1940 and 1978, an average of 13 men a year were jailed. Homosexual every month, someone going to prison for phenomenal. That's phenomenal. While between 1962 and 1972, there were 455 convictions. So, this is something that you know greatly affected people's lives. And and this week, the the Taoiseach evoked the name uh, of Declan Flynn and apologizing on behalf of the state for those convictions. So, we've come in in, in, in an incredibly long way, uh, and this week was proof of that.